This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to the Crafting Character Podcast. Steve Carter here, and in association with my good friends at Preaching Today, The Ascent Leader, and Food for the Hungry, I'm excited to bring you today's episode where, again, we talk about the craft of communication and with incredible leaders who are striving and trying to have their character lead the way. We're going to learn from an incredible teacher and pastor and leader. His name is Joby Martin. He is the lead pastor of Church of 1122 in Jacksonville, Florida. And I have just been taken back by this interview. I'll just tell you straight up. I, I, um, some of the things that he talks about, about the way that he thinks and the way that he arranges his talks are going to be so, so beneficial. But I pulled a message of his from his study in the book of John, where he talks about humility all through the lens of the comparison trap and baptism with John's disciples getting a little anxious over what was happening with this rabbi named Jesus. Hear this. In the Old Testament, they would baptize people. Um, it, 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 was, it was a symbol of purification. The priests would like take this bath in a thing called a mikvah before they would go into the temple so that they would be externally clean. And then what the John, John the Baptist is taking that and he takes it a step further and he's doing a baptism, a baptism of repentance. Anybody that's willing to turn away from themselves and turn towards the coming Messiah, they would go into the Jordan and they'd be baptized and then Jesus takes it up a notch even beyond that, and says that what baptism is is an outward invisible symbol of not an external cleansing, but the fact that the blood of Christ has already cleansed us from the inside, and that's all that's going on there. So Jesus is baptizing, or his people are, and John the Baptist is baptizing, and then verse 25, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Which church? <clears throat> you gotta pay attention here, man. Oftentimes what can happen is an incredible move of God and then right on the heels of it, some church people can get in some like denominational squabbles over you're not doing it right. That's what's happening here. They're taking their eyes off what matters most. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. So John's disciples are like, hey, boss, we got a problem here. We're losing market share. I mean, things were going awesome. You were all crazy, eating locusts and screaming at people and making fun of the Pharisees. People love it when you do that. And now you baptize that carpenter, Jesus, your cousin, and now our ministry's shrinking. And look, his ministry's growing. What are we gonna do? To which I, I'm, I'm thinking John the Baptist is like, hold on, man. How are you going to be jealous of Jesus's ministry? I mean, were you not paying attention when I said, I am not the Christ, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? You don't remember that part? Remember when I said, I can't even carry his gym bag, I can't even tie his sandals? Were you not paying attention? 
But I can tell you what we all have a propensity to do wrapped around the axle of our own ego is in one second, every one of us has the ability to fall into what is called the comparison trap. And when you begin to get jealous of what others have, when you begin to compare yourself with everybody else, it is a trap. It is a lose-lose proposition. And the reason it's a lose-lose proposition is because when we compare, we always compare what we know about ourselves to what we don't know about somebody else. They are comparing their ministry that they know well, and what they don't know about Jesus is that he is the Son of God. They are comparing themselves with the very move of God that they are there to support. Also, when we compare, we often compare our B-roll with everybody else's highlights. We compare our unfiltered life to everybody else's filtered life, and these things are killing us. I mean, get your phone, look at it, and say, you're a liar, because it lies to you every day. And every study says that the more time you spend on social media, the more you will deal with things like anxiety, worry, and depression. Because we continuously, listen, man, your friend's vacation was not as good as their Instagram said it is. We've all been there before. The pictures are way better than the reality. You're screaming at your kids, you're yelling at each other, but you can filter all that out and it does not make it to the gram. Comparison kills us every single time. And not only that, comparison is an affront against God. When you compare yourself to somebody else, essentially what you're saying is, God, you got it wrong. You gave her too much and me not enough. And it's always a lose-lose proposition because comparison can only lead to pride or condemnation. And neither of those is the native tongue of the Heavenly Father. Pastor Joby, thanks so much for joining us on the Crafting Character Podcast. We just heard a clip of you talking, preaching from your series on the book of John, talking about humility. Give us a little like overview about that series and especially that preach on the topic of humility. Well, first of all, Steve, thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm kind of a new listener to your podcast and man, it's, it's been so refreshing. Um, there's tons of podcasts on leadership, right? And there's tons of podcasts on church growth and all those things, but but a podcast about not only the craft of preaching, but the character of the preacher. Um, this, this is about as timely a podcast as I've ever heard. So first, I just want to thank you for that. Thanks, man. So it's almost comical that I would teach on humility. Um, I don't think that is my natural state of existence, particularly when it comes to ministry, right? You've been a part of the biggest ministries that there are. And you have seen your name all over the place. And it's a weird thing, isn't it, in ministry? It is, yeah. And then as, you know, as John the Baptist's disciples are getting a little weirded out that they're, they're losing market share and not as many people are coming to their event as Jesus' event. And, and the way John puts it just wrecked me. You've all been to a wedding. And this whole thing that we were a part of is just to introduce the bride to the groom. And if you saw, if you saw a, a, a groomsman trying to make the wedding about him, yes. you would say, what is wrong with you? And yet the moment that like preachers and preaching and evangelical 
ism became a vocation, became a real danger of um, our names being the big name and not Jesus. Now, not eternally speaking, for sure. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. But I think about this all the time. When people walk away from an 1122 service, are they talking about me? Are they talking about the band? Are they talking about how cool the video was? Or are they talking about Jesus? And if they're not talking about Jesus, we are doing something wrong. In fact, we're actually subverting the wedding feast and trying to get glory for ourselves. So powerful. Well, I love this because this is really true to the heart of your life verse, Acts eleven twenty four. 24, right? Speak, speak, speak to that because, again, every time I hear you teach, just even that little riff that you just gave, I see that. I see that in your core values as a staff, biblical integrity, spirit-led courage, Christ-like character, sacrificial love. These themes just seem to resonate again. And again and again with the church of eleven twenty two, but but give me like the backstory of that Acts eleven twenty four passage. Yeah, uh, I didn't grow up in church uh, at all, and then got in some pretty significant trouble as a high school kid. And a football coach talked to a judge, and I ended up cutting grass at a Southern Baptist summer camp. And um, and he was like the mean dean of the camp. He ran the whole place, and it was a great camp, and they loved Jesus and. And uh, it was pretty fundamentalist, but they knew how to put the fun in fundamentalism, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and so uh, the counselors on the last night of camp would reenact the crucifixion of Christ with like bed sheets and torches. And they would, re- it was, it was crazy. But growing up in the South, I had heard of Jesus and I would have said I was a Christian just because I was Southern and I was American. But on that night, after seeing this representation of Christ dying for me on the cross, my coach said, God so loved you so much. He sent his only son, Jesus, to die for you. And if you would believe, you could receive and be a child of God. And then he said, who wants to ask Jesus into their heart? I wouldn't even use that language anymore, but I did and he did. That's where I got saved. A few years later, um, I'm on staff as a college kid at that camp. And Coach Lee sends me up to preach my very first sermon ever. I'm standing in the back of the room, and this is before we had, like, worship as we know it. The guy's on stage with a slide projector thing. You remember how you had to, like, keep the words? Okay. And he's singing, I am a C. Remember that one? Oh, yeah. Come on. And so I'm standing in the back, and Coach Lee says, boy, he he called me my whole name. He said, Joby Martin, when the singing's done, you're going to (laughs) preach. I was like, you mean in, like, two minutes? Coach, I'm not comfortable Uh, speaking in front of people. And he said, boy, did you say comfortable? Do you think Daniel was comfortable in the lion's den? Boy, do you think Paul and Silas were comfortable in prison? Boy, do you think Jesus Christ was comfortable on the cross? And I was like, no, sir. And then I simply said, well, coach, what do I talk about? And he said, boy, that's easy. You talk about Jesus, you talk about 30 minutes. And sit me (laughs) up there. And so there I was, it was about 100 middle school kids. I opened John 3.16. I preached it just because that's, honestly, that's probably the only verse I could find, you know, yes. at that point in my life. And when I got done, a bunch of kids gave their life to Christ. And, and, and Coach Lee said, boy, when you preach the word, I see two things happen. I see you come alive and I see them come alive. Mm. And I was like, Coach, I'm never going to work at a church. Forget about it. Years later, he passes away. And I get a phone call. And he was on a, I was on a mission trip, so I couldn't go to the, funeral, which I thought was pretty appropriate. And one of the counselors did his eulogy 
from when I was a high school kid at the camp, right? And he used Acts 11.24 to talk about Coach Lee, that he was a good man. He was a good dad. He was a good husband. He was a good coach. He was full of the Holy Spirit, that, that, that God just had to nudge him a little bit, and Coach Lee would do what the Spirit of God told him to do, that he was full of faith. He was not led by fear. He was a man of faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. And a great number in the kingdom is just one more. And I was one of the great number that, that God used Coach Lee to lead to the Lord. And so I've tattooed it on my arm and I've tried to live by that. I want to be a, a, a good dad, a good husband, and maybe a half-decent preacher. I want God to be able to just, to just steer my life like reins on a horse, just the slightest little tug, and I'll go wherever he says. I do not want to be led by fear. And I want a great number of people to be led to the Lord. And I think in the kingdom of God, a great number is just one more. So even at the church that I get to pastor, we have never tried to be a big church. We've just tried to reach one more person. Man, isn't it so fascinating, the power of legacy? I mean, just like Coach Lee and <clears throat> had no idea what that one prompting just to say, boy, <laughs> you're going to preach Jesus. Or you're going to preach for 30 minutes and, and, what, that, and what that would do. Um, for him. And, and I think what's so amazing is I think the day that we get to heaven, I'm, I'm really fascinated to meet some, some biblical characters. I'm really fascinated to, to meet some of my favorite thought leaders, but I'm really excited to meet like the Ananiases, you know, right. the, the, those, those random guys who aren't mentioned, um, but they're, they're the coach Lees who said yes. And by them saying yes to that prompting, God took that to another level. That's Acts eleven twenty four. The church is Church of eleven twenty two. What's eleven twenty two represent? So we have the dumbest church name in the history of church, which is really great. Speaking of humility, because it was an accident, man. I'm a total accidental church planner. I didn't mean to do it. I was a youth pastor for fifteen years, perfectly content doing student ministry. Had the dream job here in Jacks Beach, working for a pastor who's the best Christian I've ever met in my whole life had my own building, my own staff, my, you know, it was awesome, right? And um, we're at this Methodist church and we had a bunch of teenagers and their parents and sort of nothing in between. You know, we had a contemporary service, but if you call it contemporary, it's it's kind of not, you know what I mean? It was like, <laughs> it's like what Willow was doing 20 years ago, that kind yes. of thing. But whatever. Yes. So the leadership of the church together, we said, why don't we start a new service to just reach kind of that gap 18 to 35 kind of thing, but I, I didn't want it to be an age graded service because um, <laughs> the, I didn't want it to be all 20 year olds because the concentration of that much ignorance in one room scared me to death. So we kicked it off and the the time that it started on Sunday morning was 11:22, And I just, I'm not creative. And so I said, let's just call it that. That way people, like if you invite somebody, they at least know when to show up. And then Within 12 months, um, they had turned the reins of the whole thing over to me. It had outgrown our whole church and was at about four or five services. And then my, my senior pastor came to me and said, I think you should launch a church. I didn't even know what church planning was. I didn't know it was a thing. And then they let us, that church, Beach United Methodist Church, let us live there for a year and a half while we got our act together, raised money, um, built out a, a, an old dilapidated Walmart and launched. And so at that point, there was a couple of thousand people attending. And one of the guys that came to Christ through 1122 was a, he had, 
he had this place called Skate Lab, like a skate park place. And he would make his own bumper stickers. And he made this 1122 bumper sticker and started handing them out all over the city. And I'm not kidding. There, there are probably tens of thousands of these stickers around Jacksonville, Florida right now. And for years, people didn't even know. They just thought it was like a new like surf brand or skate brand or something. So they're everywhere. And so when we started, we were just kind of already branded. So we just called it the Church of 1122. And that is amazing. It, and then we proof texted the whole Bible to find a verse. And thankfully, Mark 1122 says, and Jesus answered, have faith in God. So oh, that's, yeah, that's beautiful. That is beautiful. Okay. You just are coming off a sabbatical. You've been mm-hmm. kind of, uh, you know, but you preach on the regular. I'd love to know a little bit about your preaching process. Okay. Um, yeah. How, walk us through what a normal week in your prep looks like. First of all, the reason I get to preach as much as I preach and I get to spend the time that I do on preparing is because I have like one of the greatest teams in the history of Christendom. The the folks around me are just awesome. So our first service of the weekend starts on Thursday night at 722. And it's, it is, it's the first weekend. So I preach every four days. The process really begins for me, I guess, maybe a year out or so. I will try to map out our sermon series. I'm pretty much a verse by verse guy preach through books of the Bible more than half the time. And a part of the reason is I'm not creative enough to come up with all this neat stuff all these creative people do. Um, and I want to be cautious to not just preach the life and times of Joby Martin, which I, I would do in one second. So real quick, can you speak to that? Because I think, I think that's um, it's the power of like a lectionary, you know, when you, when you have to come under a set of texts or, you know, when you are grounded in a book, and I, I, I have seen and experienced how series can be so biopic of mm-hmm. a pastor. I think you even having that kind of emotional intelligence, that own self-awareness. Um, just talk about that just for one second. Well, part of the reason, well, one is I just want to teach the full counsel. I mean, yeah, a part of like you mentioned the John series. All right. You know, I've been to seminary, got the degrees. I'm a Bible nerd, read commentary for fun, listen to preaching podcast as entertainment. That's me. I could have spent six years in the gospel of John, right? For me. I think we did, I can't remember how many weeks we did, call it 20, something like that, 30, I don't know, whatever it was. <clears throat> but a part of what I want our folks to do is to kind of be able to like palm a book of the Bible, huh. to teach it in such a way where they have kind of a general understanding of a book of the Bible, and then deep dive while we're in there. So that's a part of it. And a big part of it is to keep me from avoiding passages that I wouldn't necessarily just choose to preach yeah, for whatever yeah. reason. Isn't it fascinating? Because the, the more you do it, you start out, like, the, like you use the example, you're at this camp, you know, Coach Lee asked you to teach. There is this level of like, the Bible is over you, like reverence, like I don't believe to do, but the older you get, the bigger your name gets, the bigger the church gets, it's almost like you can be tempted to be over the text Mm. and not live under. I love the fact that you're like, no, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta live under this thing. And I, I gotta challenge myself to not like highlight and cherry pick what was going to be a verse, but I gotta, I got to teach this, which is why I love when walking through that series in John, because 
I mean, you, you hit this and that again, part of your core values, biblical integrity, right. you know, you, you, you do this, get, get, let's get back to the process. Cause every four days, <laughs> right. Every four days. So <clears throat> usually Sunday night before I go to bed, I read over the text Okay. and hope some sort of like angelic messenger will show up. So that's yet to happen, but I get up now. This may be a bit unique. I'm a big hunter. Okay. So Every Monday morning, I go into the woods to hunt. Depending on the season, determines what I'm sitting in, whether it's a tree stand or sitting by a tree or whatever, okay? And so I just take, I actually just take my phone because my Bible's on it. I go into the woods. I'm there before you can see anyway. And I start just by praying. I pray the same thing every Monday morning. All right, Lord, they're your sheep. They're not my sheep. You're the chief shepherd. I'm an under shepherd for a season. And then I'm out. You'll put the next cat in here, okay? So what do you want to say to your sheep through me? That's it. And then the only illustration I know to give is like you said, under, I want to get under the Lord, under the text, and then just ask him to turn on the faucet. Mm, That's good. And one of God's great graces in my life, man, a weekly reminder of his grace to me is so far, he's always given me a sermon. Like I haven't had to like run over to what all the famous guys are doing and rip them off and see. Now, for sure, I listen to them to get better. And then basically what I do while I'm sitting in the woods on Monday is I just go verse by verse and I sort of just write my own commentary. I just read a verse, kind of write down what I think it means. And then a few hours of praying over that. And I've been doing this a long time, like you have, you know how it just begins to shape up into like, here's the beginning, here's where we're going. Um, And then I just try to point to one bottom line for the text. Like, if you don't remember anything else, you got to remember this bottom line, whatever it is. And uh, a few years ago, I had had three friends of mine that are dynamic preachers. And I don't mean to name drop, but I'm going to name drop because these guys are the best of the best. It was J.D. Greer, Matt Carter, and Matt Chandler. I had those three guys listen to – I just picked three random sermons, tell me how I can improve. And J.D. said – he said, one of your sermons, he said, have you ever been on a city bus tour? Like you get on the bus, you're riding down, you're like, let me tell you about this. Let me tell you about that. And then you end up in a different place. He said, that's your sermon. It's like a city bus tour through the scripture, but it goes somewhere. Now he had some, he had some things I needed to refine in that for sure, but that's a pretty good picture for me. I'm just yeah. starting with the text, trusting it and just trying to illustrate it. Um, particularly for the folks that are new to Bible study, but I try to never avoid the, the, the hard-hitting discipleship moments for the longtime Christian. And so that's what I do. So I start that on Monday. I touch it again two or three more times before Thursday night when I preach it. I usually have no like humor or illustrations or anything bef- before I come into to our Thursday night service. A lot of that happens like while I'm digging through the text on stage. Okay. So let's go back to like, you're, you're in the tree stand reading through this. And I love that kind of analogy of a tour guide, because I think that's definitely one of the, the the ways that the, the preaching hat that we wear is like bringing people to this place, bringing people into this story, into this narrative, this grand grander idea. What are you looking for when you, when you read through that, are you look? Is it words that are popping out? Is it? Are you looking for that bottom line? Is you like? Are you looking for like that moment where you're in that tree stand and your heart starts beating a little harder? You you, you like, 
like for me, I, I'm constantly looking for where's the ache or mm. where is the good desire that God wants to call or what's the stronghold that this yeah. culturally or in our city that like this passage wants to empower us to address. W- what about you? How do you get to that bottom line idea? I typically ask three questions. My first run through it, all I'm asking is what? Just what happened? Like if I, if I just had to retell this event, what happened? So that's some like cultural things, or maybe you've got to explain that teacher sat down when they taught in the first century or the Sabbath was Saturday. You know, just here's what happened. A kid had some bread and fish and he gave it to Jesus and Jesus fed a bunch of people. Just what? And then a bit of the so what? Like, okay, so why did Jesus walk on water? What does that have to do with anything other than it happened? Or he calmed the storm. So what? He resurrected from the grave. So what? So what's the so what? And I almost always preach towards the now what? So what does that mean for you this week? Super easy one is Jesus is walking on water. That's what happened. Peter, come on out here with me. Peter walks on the water, sinks. That's just what happened. Well, so what? Well, the so what is that Peter takes his eye off of Jesus, focuses on, I mean, every preacher knows this, right? But a lot of times what we do as preachers is we stop right there. The now what is, so what are you going, what, what circumstances of your life have paralyzed you in fear? And this week you need to step out by faith. Come is on. it a phone call? Is it share an invitation? Is it forgive? It, whatever. That's kind of my general way I think about the text when I look at it. It's just what, so what, now what? That's beautiful. That's so good. I love that. Now you, 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 you say you go into Thursday night, you don't really have the, the stories or the humor. Do you find that between Thursday and the next time you teach that message, there is a massive edit? Or is it like, no, I, I it, not saying that Thursday is a practice round. I'm not saying that, but like, is, is, do you, do you go, gosh, once I have one under my belt, like I'm changing 10%. Um, what's it? What's yeah. It's probably, it's small tweaks. Most of our regular 1122ers tell me they like Thursday night the best. It's usually longer. Yeah. Um, it's more raw, but there are for sure things that I go back and be like, I'm not doing that again. And I can tell you, I am a sucker for response. And so every Sunday morning, I come in to my office at whatever, seven o'clock or so. And then I just rewatch the sermon from from Thursday night. That's like my sermon prep, which is great to watch yourself preach the sermon that you're about to preach in two hours. And the things that I will most, most often cut is when I don't just trust the spirit of God and I don't just trust the word of God but I feel this insecurity. So I either have to make people cry or laugh. I heard you talking about how important pauses are in a podcast that I was just listening to of yours. Those are the things that I pick up on when I listen back between Thursday and Sunday. Like, you know, sometimes like I should have just trusted where the text was going here. It's been a big gap in between some kind like I haven't had an amen or a laugh or anything and I need to just trust that. So those are those are the biggest edits. Man, I, I really love that because I think the gift of a Thursday and the gift of having that on tape and watching it, I mean, that's the beauty. I, I say this often, you know, as a as the basketball, former basketball player, like the film doesn't lie. 
You know right. what I mean? And so you can think like, I held that pause, right? Da-da. And then you watch it, you're like, oh, I did not. I didn't trust that moment as much as I could. You know, it's just and- some little things like when I, I, I used to, as I was praying to close the service uh, or close the sermon before we almost always respond with a song and altar time, I would like gather up my stuff. And I thought I was just being helpful to the guy that's going to grab the podium and run with it. And then when I watched it, I thought, you don't even look like that's a real prayer. Yes. Like that doesn't look serious. I knew I was being serious, but you would never see that if you don't take a minute and watch yourself. That's right. Now your stage setup is pretty unique because you typically, you know, you've got a big podium. Typically that podium is front and center, but for you, you have it typically off to the side a little bit and it's kind of, kind of like turn maybe 45 degrees with your notes. You'll come back to it, but you'll then kind of meander over a few steps, teach, da, da, da. What's on your, what's on that big podium of yours? I'm still like an old school guy. I have a Bible. Okay. And like maybe three or four pages of notes. And the notes are only Bible verses with like some, some like red letter commentary in there. We call it the red letter version here, but it'll just be verses. And then it's like, tell the dog story or (laughs) yeah the definition of a Greek word. And they're really just triggers for me. I am, I am by nature, a storyteller. I grew up in like the quintessential storytelling Southern family, you know? So every, every Christmas Eve, we'd meet at my uncle Philip's house and there were generational layers of men telling the same stories. And as we got older and generations died off, we moved closer and closer to the center and I, I'm not even like top five storyteller in my own family, but that's how I grew up just like hearing the same stories every Christmas. And that's just in me when I preach and teach. And I don't know if I just did this intuitively or what, or what, but like when I'm reading the text, I'm standing over the scripture. And when I'm adding my own illustrations, et cetera, I'm, I'm just kind of standing over here. Yeah. Sometimes I will even say, especially if if there is some conjecture on my part or a little, hopefully spirit filled imagination of what it could have been like, I will sometimes say, okay, I might be making this up. Yeah. 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 I was over there. I'm over here. But what if the angels went, you know, that kind of thing? Yes. Well, I I love that because, you know, um, I love how you bring the best of that family legacy from South Carolina. <clears throat> I often talk about the campfire stories. You know, that's, that's how I learned storytelling is a similar thing. And you just watched it. You would watch some dads start to tell a story and, you know, people tune out, but then you'd hear one dad tell a story and you were like, I am riveted. And I even know how it ends, but I, the way that he knew timing and all of that, what are some of the, the kind of family storytelling hacks that yeah. you've brought into you know, 1122 and whenever you get the chance to preach elsewhere. So when a story is known by your people, it's not done. It's just getting good. I mean, <laughs> yes, there is holy repetition. Think about it. Why in the world do we have four gospels that essentially tell the same thing? You know, different flavors, different versions, different audiences. But we got the first four books of the New Testament. God decided I'm going to tell this life, death and resurrection thing about my son four times. So just because I tell a story does not mean it's done. In fact, here's a hack. When, you're, when your church already knows the story, then let them be a part of the punchline. You know, 
Um, I tell a story all the time about how we used to have these dogs and they hated the crate, but they loved cheese. And I would throw cheese in the crate and they would jump into the crate. Okay. Um, oftentimes, I believe you've heard this a thousand times, but my dogs hated the crate. But what did they love? And there are a bunch of people who go, cheese. Now, <laughs> does that some people feel on the outside because they didn't know the answer to that? Maybe, but I think it helps people want to be on the inside. Wow. You know? They will, it's an easy answer. It's not a theological answer. It's just cheats. You yes. know, I also think you need multiple versions of the same story. Like you've seen the extended Super Bowl commercial. And then you've seen a version of that that's not three minutes, but it's two. Then you've seen another version that's like 25 seconds. I think you need those same th- those versions of the story. Because sometimes all you've got to do is just kind of point back to you guys know the story of how we started as a church and you can do that really quick. And then sometimes you give the like expanded version. Those are, those are two story hacks. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. Um, I just got my hands on your first book. Uh, if the tomb is empty and just thinking about the story of the resurrection and I've made it through halfway through. Obviously, it drops today. Um, we're going to talk about this in a moment. But I I got this early copy of it, and you did something so different, in my opinion, because you walk through seven mounts that are found in the scriptures. I mean, from Moriah to Sinai, Carmel, the Beatitudes, uh, Temptation, Transfiguration, and then Calvary. But you you anchored it right from the jump in two verses that just like I, I was reading it uh, in a diner yesterday, just the and I couldn't put this thing down. I just was like plowing through it. I got through three or four of the, the chapters, but like these two verses hit me. One was from Philippians 3:10. And I just want to like hear you kind of like set this book up, but I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. So that's the first verse. Second verse was you kind of cherry-picked a couple verses from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14 and 17. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, mm-hmm. and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And those few verses, just right in the introduction, I was like, oh, the world needs this book. Mm-hmm. So give, give me a little of the backstory, Genesis, of how this book came to be and why you feel like kind of going into Easter, which is, you know, uh, it's later this year in April, but it's coming up and why this book, I think, will help pastors in their prep for a great Easter sermon. Well, I think they're kind of parallel tracks here. One, I'm, I'm, I'm a gospel guy. I know everybody should be, but I mean, I'm always, one, I can't get over the gospel in my own life. I just can't. I can't believe that he would save me. I just can't get over it. Um, you know, and how great thou art when the writer of that hymn says that he scarce can believe it. That That's what I think about when I think about Christ dying for me. And so if I have a message to share, it's going to be the gospel. And I, and I love to look in the scriptures of how the gospel is from the very first page to the very last. I began to study some of the mountains in the scriptures and how God used mountains. And I don't know why, but he would, he would just show up and show off on all these mountains, right? And so we started in Mount Moriah. We end on Mount Calvary. 
Very few church people even know that was the same mountain. Yes, it's right. It's right. Right. Yep. It's the same. I mean, that's enough to just stop right there and say, you got to be kidding me. You can't make this stuff up. Yep. There's a dad going to sacrifice his son and there's a substitutionary male lamb there with a crown of thorns. I mean, give me a break, man. Yep. So for the person that's been a Christian for a really long time, I want to dive into these places where God showed up on a mountain. Because what I also noticed is that God seemed to demonstrate his glory on the top of the mountain and his grace and mercy in the valley. I mean, think about the mountain of transfiguration. That's pretty cool. Jesus's face is shining like the sun, exploding like lightning. And Peter, like a lot of us, is like, we should stay here. <laughs> this is, in fact, one of my favorite, one of the funniest things about Peter to me is that Jesus is talking to Elijah and Moses. This is the personification of Romans 3, by the way, that the law and the prophets are bearing witness to the gospel. That's, act, that's literally happening right there. And then Peter's like, you know what? There's Jesus, there's Moses, and there's Elijah. I should probably say words. And he sticks his head in there and is like, it is good that we are here. <laughs> and I think sometimes as pastors, we, we kind of feel like that at church. Like you have these church moments, right? And they're the best. It's like you're in the manifest presence of God. You don't want to leave. You're like, we could just have tents for everybody. Let's just stay here. And Jesus is like, hold on, man. I displayed my glory up here. Y'all don't even know it yet, but there's a dad down there with a sick kid. And we stay up here and we're no good for him. Wow. Come on, follow me down this mountain. So it's a journey from peak to peak to peak through valley and valley and valley. And there are these seven different mountains, but it really all just points to this one mountain that holds a tomb that couldn't hold the son of God. Yeah. That's what it is. I, I love it. I love it because like so many, like even as I read through the Mariah, you know, and you're, you have these like great tags, like, you know, living as saving yourself or Sinai, who tells you who you are, you know? And like you, you go after those aches, you know, when you get to Carmel, what, what idols are you still holding or carrying? Like you, you start attacking, but like you said, it is a march to this Mount called Calvary. What I found, I've been in ministry since I was 19. I've been on church staff, and now I'm 48. And I can't tell you the number of conversations I've had, particularly since planting 1122 10 years ago, where people would come to me and say, Pastor, I'm in an impossible situation. I'm in an impossible marriage. Or my spouse cheated, and I don't know what to do. Or my prodigal son is gone, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and they're never coming home. Or... The doctor just said, I have cancer. Impossible situations. And I, and I found myself saying, hold on, but you, I mean, you're a Christian, right? You're a believer. Right, right, right. Okay. And you believe Christ died on the cross for you. When he died on the cross, that counted for you. I believe it. And you believe three days later, he resurrected his dead son from the grave to put death to death and save you forever. I believe that. And then one day it just fell out of my mouth and I said, well, if the tomb is empty, anything is possible. That's what I want people to understand from this book. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to change your circumstances. Wow. I mean, speaking of, of Elijah on Mount Carmel, right? I mean, he's having suicidal thoughts in the cave. Yep. And so what you get when you trust God is not necessarily that your circumstances change, but you get the sovereign king of your circumstances that are infinitely better than any change he could make around you. 
And so I want people to know that, man, when things seem absolutely impossible, they are perfectly positioned for God to do his best work. And the most impossible thing on the planet is this. He saved you and he saved me. I mean, I am a sinner with (laughs) irreconcilable with God, except the tomb is empty. And because of that, I know him. He's, He's my dad. Yeah. Pastor Joby, what's interesting is, and I don't know if this was your kind of story of coming to faith, um, but for so much of my upbringing and learning, I felt so much was like predicated on Good Friday and the cross, Mm -hmm. which, which, and it was like, that was like capital (laughs) C. And then Easter was like, and resurrection. I didn't feel like got the attention at, or was at the same weight of the cross. And and now I feel like there are some churches that like are high resurrection, low Good Friday, and some churches that are low Good Friday, high resurrection. I think what's so amazing is every time I listen to you, I feel like you carry both, but I really feel like you embody that 1 Corinthians 15 passage, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith right. is in vain. So like talk about like when you woke up to the power that that tomb was empty, that anything is possible. This <clears throat> chapter 15, 1 Corinthians, goodness me, it, we need the resurrection. A lot of it had to do with the fact that the majority of people in our churches believe half of the gospel. Come on. If I were to ask you, if you were to die tonight, you're standing before Jesus and say, and he says, why would I let you in heaven? Most people would say, because you died on the cross for my sins, period. And here's what that, and that's true. That is true. Your slate has been wiped clean. But if that is all that happens, then what the implication is, you better fill your slate out right this time. And that's why a bunch of us, nobody ever explicitly said that to us, right? But the implication was that we were justified by faith, but we were sanctified and glorified by our works. But the full gospel is... Not only did G- was our sin imputed to Christ on the cross, and Jesus is the propitiation for our sin, but Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. And the reason we can believe that is because the tomb is empty. Oh, wow. That when he resurrected from the grave, that's when the debt is fully and finally paid for, and he has conquered sin and death. If God only forgave you, what good is that? All right, let's just say you owed the bank whatever you owe the bank. Say you had a million dollars in credit card debt and mortgage and all that. And then you went to the bank and said, I don't know what I'm going to do about it. And the bank president said, I've got really good news for you. I'm canceling your debt. You'd be pumped. And you walk out of the bank broke. So then what do you have to do? Get to work. That's the gospel most people are taught. It's not true. In this illustration, it would what we get with the Lord we are in infinite debt. We go to him. We repent, confess him as Lord. And not only does he cancel the debt, but then he says, I'm going to adopt you into my family and I'm the president of the bank. And here's the family credit card. You have access to everything I have access for. That's different because now I'm not working from a place to try to gain favor with God. I gladly go to work with my heavenly father out of just an overflow of gratitude that he came out of the grave and he went to prepare a place for me and he wasn't lying. He's coming to get me. He's going to take me home. That's different. You know, there's, there's this passage in Genesis and 
where <clears throat> Abram asked this question, like, like how, how do I know like you are going to keep your word? And he's like, all right, go get some animals, cut them in half, put them on one side, put them on the other side. Like you can feel just the weight and the ache of this question. Like God's shown him a vision, what his life's going to be, but he's asking a human question. How do I know? And in those days, you would kind of, this was a way that you would make a contract with another party. And basically if you didn't keep your word, what happened to the animals would happen to you, right? Right. So what's amazing in this passage though, and you just, you so like get to this and what you just shared is Abram thinks, oh, God's going to have me walk through. Mm -hmm. And when I walk through, it's basically going to be on me that I got to keep this. But then it's like, this spirit goes through and it's like, God's continuing to say like, oh, I'm the one who it's all on. You have to trust the promise. Like I'm, and, and it's so amazing though, because what you just said, we put ourselves back in the control of working when we only have a half gospel. Right. And we take the responsibility of actually God went before us. Mount Moriah, God provided, you know, all. And, and so all of this is learning to live in the promise. Why do you think it's so hard for preachers to preach this? And maybe secondary, why do you think it's so hard for Christians or disciples to live this? Man, sometimes I think it's hard for preachers to preach it is because oftentimes we measure our success by the behavior of those that we're discipling. That's really tough, man. Like we always want grace for us and accountability for you. We want, we want to be judged by our intentions and judge everybody else by their actions. Dude, grace is a scary, scary thing. Grace, I, I mean, offering grace to other people, it's a scary, scary thing. And yet it is by grace that we are saved. And so um, I, I think that's why oftentimes it's scary for preachers to, to preach the grace of, of God. And then we have been wired from the womb and the enemy has lied to us every day of our life that God's not really for us, that he's not. Yeah. He always, the enemy from, from Genesis, he wants to twist the, the worth of God. Like, should you really worship him? He wants to twist the word of God. Did God really say? And this is the biggest one, in my opinion. And he wants to twist the work of God. You really think when Jesus died on the cross, that counted for you? That didn't count for you. It counted for those good church folk, but not for you. And so all of our lives, even post-salvation, the enemy still whispers lies in our ears. You sure that counted for you? This is This is why maybe my favorite prayer in all of the Bible, and I'm not alone in this, is in Mark 9. After the mountain of transfiguration, Jesus and the disciples get down to this dad, who, by the way, had a first name and a permanent address. I I, I try to never call them stories because I don't want to think like characters and stories and veggie tales and flannel graph. This is a dude, man, with a kid. He's in a real situation. And he cries out the most honest prayer, maybe in the whole Bible. I mean, we all know it. The, the disciples get in this denominational argument over something, and they miss the point of ministry. Jesus gets pretty aggravated with them. And the dad goes, if you can. And Jesus, it's hard to read the tone in the text. If I can. What do you mean, if I can? Anything is possible for the one who believes. 
And the man cries out, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And the grace-filled response of Jesus has nothing to do with what this man ought to do. He heals the man's son, period. That's what I want people to know through the cross and the resurrection. So good. Gosh, you know what I love in at the end of every chapter, <clears throat> you know, you've, you've done your contextual work. You've done, you know, a little South Carolina storytelling. You've, yeah. you've got the, the Joby Martin version of like, sometimes you're like, Hey, this is how it's hitting me. And you've got just a really, really, you know, even as you've just dropped some of these sentences, you've got these amazing nuggets. And then, then you end so pastorally at every chapter with a prayer. And, and just talk about that. Like, did you just like journal those prayers out? Like, where, where did those prayers come from? Because they're so meaningful and they're so personal. But I love just the way that you organize the book. Um, I think a part of it is the reflection of our church. So at the end of my sermons here, I think the most important part of our service is not the preaching or the singing at the beginning. I think it's when all of that comes together and we just ask people to respond to the gospel and just marinate in it for a minute. And a part of our response is a prayer time. And I just wanted to pray that God would use these words to change people's lives. And that could be changed for salvation. I hope and pray that happens. But it could be to restore marriages and break addictions or eliminate fears, whatever it is. And I did not write this book for the sake of evangelicalism or for any publishing company. And I wrote it just so that people would be discipled and maybe it would be a tool and an avenue that, that, that people would meet God. And um, man, all the things that we do are powerless without the power of prayer. Yeah. And so I just wanted to pray over folks. And I, and I thought, man, God gave me, I'm not a hyper charismatic guy whatsoever. Okay. I'm a kind of a recovering Baptist dude, <clears throat> but I thought about the guy sitting in the cell block reading this. And I thought about the, the mom who's just gone through a miscarriage. And, and I thought about a, a couple that, that thought, you know what? We've tried everything else to keep our marriage together. Why don't we try church? I mean, I thought about those kinds of folks and just wanted to lift up those people to Jesus in prayer. And I, I loved it. I mean, I think, you know, and the other thing about this is, you know, you know what this is like, you're, you're, you're looking for sermon series ideas. You're, you're looking for something to, to preach. And, and again, oftentimes when I mean, we've been doing this 20 plus years, preaching a Christmas message, preaching, leading up to Easter and having a resurrection message. What I felt when I read this book was that you could really do seven weeks and like literally like end in Easter with Mount Calvary. Like the sure. way that you articulated this out where I'm like, oh my goodness, this is like week one. Or you could even just cherry pick your favorite four. And, and like, if you, if you don't have a series for the end of March and April, but this, the insights that you drop the, the practical accessibility and application. Um, I'm telling you, man, this, this is going to help a lot of people. I actually think it's going to help a lot of our listeners who are pastors and preachers who are like, dude, I need, I need to, I need to do it. How do you feel like today's the day that the book is coming out? Like, are you, are you like, yeah. How do, how do you feel about that? 
<laughs> well, I feel a little like if the tomb is empty, anything is possible. I promise my third grade English teacher would think this is a miracle. <laughs> and, you know, we planted our church 10 years ago and it grew big really fast, which for sure happens. And then you know how this goes in our world, right? You start getting the pressure to write because that's just like, you know, you, you plant a church, it happens. And then you start doing the conference thing a lot. And then, and then they're like, all right, so when, when's your book coming out? And I just... Honestly, man, I just was waiting until I felt like the Lord gave me something to say, you know, and uh, Tim Keller said, don't write your first one too soon. And I did. I just didn't want to do that. There's some other things that happen. And we are for sure preaching this, by the way. I mean, our Lent series at 1122 is if the tomb is empty and we're going to start on Mount Moriah. We're going to end on Mount Calvary. We're going that way. Genius. (laughs) I also wrote the book in such a way that I want people to be able to use it as a evangelism and discipleship tool. Like the, the chapter on the mountain of transfiguration spends a whole bunch of time with the father praying, I believe helped me overcome my unbelief. And so if you had a friend that is in that place of crisis of faith in their life, you could say, here you go, just read this one chapter. But it for sure, it, it's from mountaintop to mountaintop on God's glory. And, and we, we're preaching it as our Easter series. Another thing that happened, um, you know, the, the cover says by Joby Martin with Charles Martin. Charles Martin is a deacon in our church, and he's also an author, and he's written like... The New York Times bestseller, Charles Martin? The New York Times bestseller, Charles Not Martin. your brother. Not my brother. <laughs> that Charles oh, Martin is one of my dearest friends on the planet. Come okay? on. He, uh, he loves to hunt, and he lives in my neighborhood, and he's one of my best friends. And so the way this would go down is... Um, our church has a retreat center about an hour north of where we live and in, in, it's in South Georgia. And we would go up there together and, and hunt for a couple of days. And then we'd build a fire in these cabins that we have. And I would just basically preach him the content. And then he would help me in his words, take my content from, from page, from stage to page. And he's been listening to me preach for about eight or nine years now. So that helps. And then he would ask me about 10,000 stories. He's like, all right, you remember the one where you talk about your dog or what, you know, <laughs> he'd be like, tell me that one. And so a part of the reason, it's a big deal to me. Maybe I may be the only one it's a big deal to. That's why it says with, like people said, you know, should he, is he a ghost writer? I don't even know what that means. Especially in this day of the age, there's kind of a yeah. skepticism about pastors writing books. You know what I mean? Yep. And so Charles helped me for sure take, but I believe the messages that God gave me through his word and helped me get them from out of my mouth to on the paper. And we're going to keep doing them. And a part of the reason, man, the process for me, it was like a two-man discipleship group. It's some of the most enriching discipleship moments I've had in a long time. And I've been teaching Bible study for a long time, but this dude is a stud in his faith too. There's no doubt. And man, we would go from like, shaping a chapter to, I can't tell you the number of tears that were shed together and prayers that were prayed together over, you know, the people that were going to read it or whatever it was that, that we were talking about. But, but the process has been a real gift from God to me. I, I think it's, it's, it's amazing because part of preaching is finding your process. Mm-hmm. Part of writing is finding that process and, right. and each medium is wildly different. You know, it's like mm-hmm. Twitter's different from TikTok and TikTok's different from Instagram but finding how your voice can go from the stage to the page is 
really, really difficult. But to have someone that you trust that mm -hmm. knows your sound and knows your stories and knows like, okay, tell me that and push right. you here. But I love how you turned almost like a Sabbath um, retreat mm -hmm. into something you love and affinity of hunting around a story from your childhood around a fire into telling stories, into preaching with a dear friend, into discipleship. Like it's, it's you. And when I read it, it sounded like you. Like the, the Joby Martin, I know what I love to listen to when he preaches. And so the beautiful transformation or the transference of like great content from stage to page, it happened. It happened. I want to, I want to go though, because you kind of dropped these little hints and we talk about this often is I, I, I want people to be better at the craft of preaching, but I, I want your character to lead the way. Uh, I want us to finish the race. And, you know, I, I pray this every time I leave a church and I'm driving home. I just say I'm one weekend closer to finishing well. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious, like for you in this season, um, you're just coming off a sabbatical, mm -hmm. uh, but for you in the season, like how you're so intentional, how, how are you just um, making space, fighting for your integrity, your character um, to lead the way? What does that look like in your life? <laughs> Uh, one is I listen to guys like you because you know it firsthand, bro. I mean, you've been through it, man. And look at you. Hmm. You could have, honestly, it almost feels like Elijah, as I, as I think about what you were through, but there was a moment and you were on Mount Carmel slaying 850 prophets, right? I mean, you're on the biggest stage of the one of the most influential places ever. Some stuff happens. You could have been in a cave praying, kill me now. But somehow, man, you still heard the still small voice of the Lord. And look how God is using you to impact so many. It's a really big deal. That's inspiring. And I just want to say thanks on behalf of a whole lot of people. I want to say thanks. Um, <clears throat> I think about this. Look, when we first started and you, hear, you heard about ministries getting blown up and pastors failing, they might as well have been talking about Elvis Presley and Michael Jackson, right? We didn't know these guys at all, right? And then as I got older and got into this and some of the names and the headlines, these are like legit buddies of mine that we've done stuff together. And, and I never in a million years thought it would have been that guy or that guy or that guy. Yeah. And so the thing the Lord reminds me of, bro, is, but by the grace of God, there you go I. And so the moment you think you're bulletproof, bro, you are, you're in the biggest trouble ever. Yeah. I think, if, I think some things are so important. One is you got to have this Sabbath I had was a, an incredible gift of God from my church and from my elders for sure. But more important is first one I've taken in 20 years, but more importantly, I think are healthy rhythms like daily, weekly, monthly, seasonally, annual rhythms. And they change all the time. When I had no kids, they looked one way. Now I got a 16 and a 12-year-old pray for me. They just looked different. One of the things that I've noticed as I've looked at these guys that didn't finish well, some things I see that they have in common uh, in no particular order. There was like, there was no local, in our context, what we would call local eldership. There wasn't a group of people that were more seasoned than them that could look at them and say, no, stop, don't. You know, they had their friends from other states. 
it was just whatever. I think local authority matters because if I just get my friends from all over the world to like be my authority, they only see my sermons and that's the best hour of my whole week. And it's not even close. I need to see, I need somebody around here that sees how I coach ball, how I talk to my wife, that kind of thing. It seemed to me that these guys that don't make it don't have legit friends. They don't man. And Ministry can be very lonely, but it does not have to be lonely and miserable. I mean, think about what a we live in the greatest time in the history of Christendom to be in ministry. I mean, for for a over a century, I'm disqualified because I'm getting married and making babies, and you know what I mean. And and we live in a time right now that is incredible. You better have a band of brothers around you. The verse that people love to quote about. The, it, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's in the context of Peter talking to elders, elder pastors. Yep. It's not just a rando verse for every church member. That is the context. And so you got to have real friends. And I think it's important to have some kind of hobby or something that is healthy, that can steal your mind away from church. Because what often happens especially pastors and church planners, man, we're a little bit of adrenaline junkies and a bunch of guys, man, they, they begin to get involved in things that kind of zing them a little bit and they are not healthy. Yeah. And the list goes, you know, it, it, you know where it goes. And so as goofy as it is, man, me getting to hunt a little bit, it's just this thing. I think, all right, as soon as I get finished preaching tonight, tomorrow morning, I get to go chase whatever it is. And Pastor Rick Warren told me one time, told a bunch of us one time, if you work with your mind, you should primarily rest with your hands. And if you work with your hands, you should primarily rest with your mind. Well, we primarily work with our mind. And so I get out on the ranch and drive the tractor and fill up the feeders and cut the, you know, just do mindless stuff. And so, and then you should listen to your wife. I'm just telling you, if she has a little... She shouldn't even have to explain herself. If she just senses that you are overworked, too tired, that staff person scares me, whatever the thing is, man, I really believe in my family, my wife, she is the thermometer. She shows me what the temperature is and I can fight against it all I want to. But if she says you need a break, you should really pay attention. Coach Lou Holtz one time, I heard him say this, it's brilliant. He said, if you're a leader, you should always listen to your wife because nobody loves you like she does. Nobody knows you like she does. And nobody is less impressed than she is. That's right. And that is a great combination. Man, that's so good. I love all of those. I mean, they're just so practical. And um, again, just so you, let's say you had a bad weekend and a bad teach and or bad, like, I just, it, Things didn't go, staff members transitioning out, you know, uh, and now you're going hunting. Um, and, you know, you got Thursday coming. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, what does that look like for you to almost get yourself back? Because I, I think for so many pastors right now, this has just been a hard couple of years. Oh, and, you know, and so I think um, part of, I've heard, um, Ray Johnson, Pastor Ray Johnson say like, you know, your, your main job is <laughs> encouraging yourself at times, you know, like you got to like find ways to get yourself back. And if you can't, then you're going to look for those a little other adrenaline hits, you know, mm-hmm. um, what's a practice for you that just almost silences 
the critics or silences the drama that allows you to return back to the presence of God. Man, when I sit in that tree stand with my Bible, I am first and foremost writing a sermon to me. I mean, make no bones about it. Our folks will say, oh, you're so authentic. I'm like, I'm not. I mean, that's not like a tactic. It is, it is just wrestling with me that the spirit of God with the word of God in me is wearing me out. And there are multiple times where I've just even gotten up and say, Hey man, if you've got to be an expert in this in order to teach it, I can't teach this, but let me tell you what this passage and the spirit of God is doing to me right now. We did a series a long time ago called act like men and we changed it to be a godly man. And where where Paul says in Corinth, let all you do be done in love. We were just talking about the characteristics of a man. I thought, oh, I got a great sermon idea. I'll just, you know, I'll go first Corinthians 13 and say, like, this is what love is. So to be a man, this is what love is, right? Man, I had to call my wife from, I had to go to the highway to get some reception and just call her and say, I am so sorry. She said, what are you talking about? I said, baby, I have not been loving you. She's like, oh, you love me. I said, no, no, no. Oh, I love you. But if this is the definition of the actions of love, I have not been loving you. She said, what are you talking about? I was like, okay, love is patient and kind. And she goes, what else does it say? <laughs> now, because I am not those things. So that we, so the Lord wrecked me. I'm talking about tears and repentance and confession. And I still wasn't done by the weekend. And so I just get in front of our church and say, hey man, I'm a, I'm a failure when it comes to this week. Some weeks, I'm doing okay by the grace of God. This week, you just want to walk through this with me? Here we go. And if you need a perfect pastor, you were in the wrong place. You just hadn't been disappointed yet. Wow. And what's crazy, man. You see, we started out talking about humility. Humility is not an attitude. It's a posture. Yep. I mean, you just posture yourself under the gracious hand of God. You can, you can just admit whatever weaknesses and struggles whatever you have. And then trust, not even in your, not just in your own strength, but just trust that God anointed and appointed you to be a herald of his good news. Mm. Man, one time early on, I was at this like young leaders thing. I don't get invited to young leaders things anymore, but back when I was one of those, I was with Wayne Cordera, who is a, He's Yoda, right? I mean, he's a sage. He's incredible. And he's asking me about 11.22. And anytime I'm in those environments, I try not to talk any numbers or whatever, especially at a church planner thing, because you know how that goes. So I'm kind of hemming and hawing and doing my hee-haw thing and saying, we just meet at an old Walmart and it's just a bunch of rednecks and it's nothing. Okay. And then Wayne Cordero reaches out and puts his hand on my shoulder. And he quotes this verse from like First Chronicles about David knowing that he was the king over Israel, okay? And then he looked at me and he said this. He said, never apologize for your anointing. Walk in it. Honestly, if Elijah would have reached out of heaven and grabbed onto me, it would have been a little less impressive. And so regardless of the circumstances I'm in and feel like and whatever, I'm not the only teaching pastor on our staff. We're raising up people, all those things for sure. But my job is to just be faithful to what he has called me to do and then trust him with all the results. Mm. Man, that is so powerful. Um, where can people find you? Where can people find the book? 
Oh, the book <laughs> is in all the places. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, IndieBound, Bookshop, Hudson, Target, Walmart, all these places. I mean, you can go to our website, coe22.com, and there'll be a bunch of uh, additional materials there. We wrote a Bible study to go along with it. Charles and I are going to be doing a podcast based on the content of the book um, over the next several weeks, uh, just walking through the journey of, of how we did this together and diving deeper into some some places in the content. That is beautiful. And then um, we, we've done this, we've done this kind of little tradition of how we close out the the podcast with uh, asking the guests to give a, a little benediction. And it feels, it feels apropos with how you ended every chapter in your book. Um, but before I, before I ask you to do that, thanks for really being that Acts 1124. Hmm. Good man, spirit led and fighting to see one more come to Christ. Uh, I love what God is doing at 1122. Um, even just a couple of the people that I've gotten to get to know, Adam and Ryan and April, uh, my buddy, Josh Turner, who teaches every once in a while for you guys, like just the, the, the people, um, there's something stirring in Jacksonville and beyond. And um, thanks for walking in the anointing that God has given to you. So would you mind leading us in a benediction? Uh, to everyone who is listening, may you know that God is for you. He's not against you. May you put your faith, not in your ever-changing circumstances, but in the sovereign Savior that is over your circumstances. May you understand the reality of the gospel, that Jesus didn't just die for you, he died instead of you. And he didn't stop there. He imputed you with his righteousness. And no matter what you're facing this day, whether it's fear or insecurity, whether it's broken relationships or financial, may you know that if the tomb is empty, anything is possible. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, man. My pleasure. Well, thanks so much for tuning in to the Crafting Character Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed the words of Pastor Joby Martin. And also, just so you know, this podcast is on the Preaching Today and Christianity Today Network. I'm so excited because what Preaching Today is doing is trying to help everyday pastors fill their soul, fill their mind, help them stay prepared and refreshed and renewed to preach. And um, we've got an amazing, amazing tribe of pastors. Um, if you're not yet signed up, you can sign up. You can go to orderptnow.com slash CC30. And literally what's going to happen is you're going to get 30% off the first year of membership. It's going to give you some insight into some amazing communication lessons and learnings. Um, also with the Ascent Leader, we just launched another cohort with just fully packed with the legend Dick Alexander. We got another one that's queued up, ready to launch in May. That's going to be with, coached by Mike Hickerson. He's a church planner. I mean, he's been doing this for over many, many years. I think the world of this guy, Mike and Jody Hickerson out of Mission Ventura Church, they're just stellar. I can't wait for leaders and pastors to get in the living room. You can go to the ascentleader.org and learn more. And then lastly, uh, you know that one of our sponsors from the jump has been Food for the Hungry. And these people, I just got to tell you, they are amazing. I just, I'm just so blessed by them. Um, their hearts for the just 
issues in our day. And I'll tell you, I've just been taken back by their leadership and how they care about communities experiencing holistic transformation. And so if you don't know much about Food for the Hungry, please reach out, learn. If you're looking for ways to engage with global poverty and issues around the world, check them out. Well, again, friends, thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed Joby Martin. Go pick up his book. And if I can ever serve you, don't ever hesitate to reach out, whether online, whether via email, uh, Steve at steveryancarter.com or social media. Much love, everyone. Grace and peace. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.